right-wing riots in Melbourne, Morrison skips the country to play submarines with Boris and Biden, and the good news is about fossil fuels. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. Thanks so much for joining us. My name is Ben Davison, and as is far too frequently been the case over the last three months, in fact, it's been every episode for the last three months, I'm joined from Sydney by the wonderful, the magnificent, the gorgeously beautiful, socially aware <laughs> Van Batum. How are you, Van? Well, as you know, I'm a little bit battered and bruised, Benny. I'm not having the best time of it here. No, no. I understand that, and many of our listeners will not know this, but you this week have had a skin cancer removed. Yep, they found a tumour in my face. So a tumour the size of a five-cent piece was cut out of my head yesterday, and it's very painful, and it was really confronting. You know, like everybody else, I think my age, I just thought skin cancers were for old people. And well, what do you know? I'm 46 now. And as is the Australian tradition, I just had a tumour cut out of my face. So I'm feeling very, very damaged and I'm I'm feeling very old. (laughs) Well, you know, it's natural to feel that way when you've had a, a day operation like that and a, and a health scare. Germanicus and I have been very worried about you back here in Victoria. Uh, it's a good reminder to everybody listening to us today to make sure that you do slip, slop, slap. Um, wear sunscreen. It's almost like somebody should write a song about it. That's right. Wear sunscreen, wear a hat, you know, spend time in the shade, all those things. Um, I think you know, generations after ours van probably got that message a bit better than we did in our day. Uh, and if you are of this sort of age that Van and I are, uh, do get your freckles and your moles checked because, you know, catch these things early. And the good news here, Van, is, of course, is that the doctors are saying this is this is very benign, this is the most common and least lethal form of skin cancer, and, and they've got onto it straight away, haven't they? Well, yeah, but just so everybody knows, it wasn't a freckle, it wasn't a mole, it was like a just weird patch of skin. Yeah. And I asked the doctor to check it out and the doctor went, yeah, we might send you for a biopsy. And the biopsy came back with cancer. So cancer cut out of my face. So get checked out, folks. I am not feeling very beautiful at all. Well, you're looking beautiful and I'm sure anybody who's been following you on social media the last couple of days will agree. And talking about social media, we got some- pain of death because Ben will kill you if you say (laughs) otherwise. That's right. But we got some more great news today. The week on Wednesday is the number one politics podcast on the Australian Apple podcast charts. Massive thank you to everybody who listens and congratulations to everybody who listens and shares and has supported Van and I and the podcast for the last year. It's the second time we've been number one, Van. Yeah, I love it. I'm so into it. I love being number one. Let's be number one all the time. Absolutely. So make everybody you know listen to our podcast because then we'll never be displaced from our spot. That's right. I love our spot. And, of course, this week I did a crossover pod, a cross pod, as Francis called it, with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg for On The Job, the official Australian Union's podcast. It was a great discussion about 
vaccine man, uh, vaccine mandates, uh, about you know what's going on in aged care and disability, the impact on the workforce. And interestingly, I touched on in that, uh, this was pre-recorded last Thursday, about how important uh, education is as a bulwark to our democracy. Because, Van, we are going to talk about um, democracy and fascism a bit today, but I encourage everyone to check out on thejobpodcast.com.au. That's where you can listen to uh, Francis and Sally you know, they talk to workers who are on the front line. They're talking to workers in everyday jobs. You know, that's where the that's where the workplace news is. And it was a great pleasure and honour to be on the show uh, that came out this Monday. So you can check that out as well. Yeah, I was really proud of you. And we love Francis and Sally. They're good eggs. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, look... Now that we're the number one uh, politics podcast in Australia, top 20 news, you know, we have to get into the big political issue of the week. Of course, fam, we're seeing the far right rioting in Melbourne. Uh, it seemed to have kicked off some preliminary preliminary uh, activity on the weekend, really, when you think about it. Uh, but then Monday there was the attack on a union office uh, that spilled into just a, a, a sort of roving riot yesterday, including um, storming onto the Westgate Bridge, uh, which was disgusting in many ways to see the far right celebrate on top of the Westgate Bridge, of course, the scene of one of Australia's most horrific industrial accidents when that bridge collapsed during its construction and many workers were killed, uh, and it has continued on today. And they have now made the Shrine of Remembrance in Melbourne their target. Van, oh, good on them! Just desecrating important symbols to working people and their families day after day. Oh, what patriots they are! These absolute feral scumbags. So, what's going on here, Van? Because there's a lot of, you know, there was some people out early on in this uh, episode. Uh, of of rioting, saying this is this is unions and this is about union power. Of course, that's not what it is. But tell us what is it? What what's going on here? What's the the what's the bubbling underneath that's bringing this to a head? Well, I've done a lot of Facebook posts about it, and if anybody's looking for material to share, go to my public Facebook page, which is just called Van Batam, and there's a bunch of stuff where I've talked about just what the tenor of these protests, and I'm using that word in inverted commas, are. These are tactical political actions. They exist in a strategic framework being employed by the far right worldwide. Now, I think probably to get so people can get their heads around what's going on, I'm going to be a bit more explanatory than I usually would. Usually Ben and I just sort of, you know, riff on the uh, topics of the day, but I have received a lot of questions and a lot of yeah. interest from people who are trying to understand what's going on. When we use the term far right, like let's start there. Your centre-right person is a bit conservative. They probably like low taxation. They don't think government should be so big and they might be a bit iffy about marriage equality or whatever. That's a typical conservative. might be iffy about abortion, social conservative issues, economically conservative issues. Somebody in the far right hates democracy, right? That's the difference. They hate democracy. They like the alternative to democracy, which is known as authoritarianism. 
right? Authoritarians believe that the people, you, me, our mums, our dads, our brothers, sisters and friends, that we are too stupid to run a society by ourselves and that us having voting rights and making decisions about who represents us, well, this is just a recipe for, you know, chaos and diversity and inclusion and accommodation and all these other things these people don't like. Authoritarians think they and the movement of which they are a part should run things. They think they That's should rule what, over us, right? Basically. They think they should rule over us, that there is one vision for society and it's the vision that they hold and that that should be imposed on people. So let's look at what does an authoritarian look like. An authoritarian looks like fascism in Italy or Nazism in Germany. Um, it looks like a lot of those extremely creepy people who backed in Donald Trump and wanted to make him God Emperor of the United States for life and overturn the US elections. They don't like elections. They don't like democracy. They don't like accountability, right? That's who they are. They feel much safer in the world when they are the ones imposing their will on everybody else. They don't like difference and they don't like multiculturalism. Now, there are some really important distinctions I want people to make because a lot of language gets thrown around about the far right for various reasons. Typically in the West, what we associate the far right with is racism because typically that's what they do. So Nazism obviously was built on a project of exterminating Jewish people. Nazism was based on a project of exterminating Romani people and Slavs and, you know, there was basically a sliding scale of base, of exterminating anybody who didn't fit the, you know, Aryan vision of the blonde, blue-eyed German, right? That's what we understand it to be. We know that the KKK, which is the Ku Klux Klan, the far-right organisation in America, we know that these guys are white supremacists, that they only want a white ethno-state for white people and have pursued extermination and genocidal strategies against black and brown people, right? Typically, in the West, that's what we understand the far-right to be. Now, where we are at the moment is that there is a a movement in the far-right which is not actually racist, that doesn't believe in a race hierarchy or sorting people out genetically, you know, based on their their colour or their ethnicity. The far right who we're dealing with in these protests is a movement of people who are, like I said, authoritarians, they don't like democracy, you know, they worship Trump as a god, god emperor or, you know, and all these various sort of saints and icons drawn from that movement, lunatics like Michael Flynn and Lynn Woods and Sidney Powell and the rest of them. But they they aren't actually racist. Like their envision of society is not about exterminating people on the basis of race. And I, I want people to get this really clear because we've really got to nail the problem Because what we're seeing in Melbourne is we're seeing these people pursue what is absolutely far-right politics of I don't like the rules that a democratically elected government supported by a majority has made. I don't like wearing a mask. I don't like being told where I can and can't go. I don't like the fact that Louis Vuitton is closed or whatever or lockdowns. I don't like 5G towers. I don't like sprinkler fitters on hoses. I mean, who knows? It's also random. Yeah. And um, and they are trying to use tactics of violence and intimidation and chaos and discord in order to get their way because they're a minority. Right? They're a minority of the population. So then- but they're not... They're not actually pursuing a racist agenda. No. But and then, part of the problem is when we start calling them racist and white supremacists, this particular group of people, I'm yeah. not saying the others don't exist, obviously they do, yeah, because they can't say, see Van, themselves. Because, Van, yeah. can I just say, because there is, 
when you go into some of these some of these Facebook groups and Facebook pages, there is if you go back far enough, you see that version of of far right activity, but then you see it start to dissipate as those people realize they can recruit these anti-vax, you know, COVID disgruntled people who 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 perhaps are not racist themselves, but are being um, uh, co- co-opted into this broader uh, melange of far-right um, uh, activity. Yeah, absolutely. So the old far-right, your Nazis, your KKK, your extreme racists, your white supremacists, those people, they're all still there. They're all still out yeah. there, right? The world has had some pretty heavy historical precedents, i.e. World War II, to demonstrate that, you know, there's a marginal positions that don't end well if you pursue them. So the old far right have uh, are in something of an alliance with this new far right. These people, a lot of whom have been radicalised on the internet, who don't actually use the old political language um, of the far right to identify themselves, even though they're doing very far right things. Like the aim is still the same, and it's to destroy democracy yeah. in the way that old far right people would want to destroy democracy because they don't like the idea of brown people voting or you know Jews being elected to office or any of those things the new far right uh uh they're mobilized against uh, a, a like a different vision of culture you know they and this is why they're obsessed with the politically correct or the woke or you hear all this language demonizing the left or socialism when their actual knowledge of these concepts particularly around socialism communism is uh, politely i would describe it as pretty thin but it's this cultural hostility so when we talk about these groups academically we refer to the you know the old far right are the racists and the new far right are the culturalists they want everybody to jump on board they're sort of anti-masking you know QAnon aligned kind of vision of the world where Donald Trump is a savior and you know all of these various cultural signifiers their flags their slogans the songs they like to sing that's the version of is there, culture that is correct and everything else is wrong. Is I don't want a, people to think they're any less genocidal no, no, because these, these people have been threatening my life for the past 24 hours. Yeah, and, and many, many people. So I wanted to ask you a question here because, of course, there, there, there was a fascist regime in Europe for a long time after World War II and people I think sometimes forget that and that that of course was Franco's fascist regime in Spain and the sort of new right that you're describing there seems... The new far right, the new far right, the culturalist the, the new, right, yeah. The, the culturalist new far right seems to be somewhat similar to that style of regime which was still brutal and violent and oppressive and you know, God help you if you were not a, a Spanish Catholic and a, and a, and a man, um, but was effectively about control and power and these are our cultural symbols and this is who we are as a nation, not all these diverse elements. Yeah, and the classic example, so Franco was obsessed with the Masons. Did you yeah. know this? Yeah. Franco yeah. was trying to exterminate Masons. And that's a, a pretty good way to, because, you know, and when I say Masons people, I mean literally the Masonic order that your grandfather or your uncle is into with the handshake and the, you know, yeah. and the, the meetings and stuff, you know. And, um, and Franco, like, 
persecuted members of Masonic orders, like with ferocity and intensity. And it's a good way of remembering like that's there is this this division between a white supremacist right and this culturalist right in the way that they go after people who are culturally dissimilar to them. But I, I keep labouring, like I'm labouring this point because it's really we have to be able to name and shame them and to get people who are sort of soft recruits to this movement movement to understand that they're really jumping on board with something that is fascistic, like they're hanging out with fascists. Yeah. Um, and while we're calling these people racists, it's not that's not where they're coming from politically joining these movements yeah. that's not that's not the law for them the racists are there and let me tell you the white supremacists and your you know swastika loving nazi types they're totally on board this bus and they're more than happy to make an alliance with these people well, and use what they're doing as like a gateway drug to you know a bit of racial genocide well there was but a very there is a distinction. yeah there was a very powerful photo taken from the riots yesterday where uh, a young man was giving a Nazi salute uh, in the street, uh, and a journalist shared that on Twitter. But Van, I want to talk a bit more about some of these um, soft right a- uh, adherents, the people who are condoning it, the people who are mislabeling it, because we've seen them come out, right? Because, of course, this week there was a lot of focus on the fact that the, these far right activists. Uh, possibly co-opted what was a, a small demonstration outside the CFMU office in Melbourne and turned it into a, a riot that has continued to this day, to this to the moment of us recording this. Um, and we saw some Morrison government ministers, Michaelia Cash, the industrial relations minister. Surprise, surprise, Michaelia Cash. Doesn't she always turn up at the most opportune moment? Yes. Well, she, she seemed to blame the CFMEU and anyone who's seen the footage of CFMEU officials having to scamper back inside as as beer bottles are thrown at them and, and their office essentially laid siege to for hours knows that the reality of that situation is that the union is the victim in in this uh, in this particular circumstance. We saw Matt Canavan suggest that violence is unacceptable, but it's understandable that people would be frustrated. Sarah Henderson, the senator from Victoria, jumped on the same kind of Michaela Cash bandwagon. Fiona Martin, who is the uh, Liberal member for Reid in New South Wales. Who nobody's ever heard of, the highly impactful member for Reid, yeah. Basically just said that this is what unions are like. Um, and, of course, we've seen, or you know, Craig Kelly and George Christensen constantly push this anti-vax line. And- oh, but I don't know if you saw this, but George Christensen was out today um, demanding that uh, that police who've been involved in crowd control efforts with these rioting thugs in Victoria, that the police should be arrested. That was George Christensen's contribution today. And Michael McCormack and Darren Chester just came out and went, yeah, no, absolutely not. Apparently Michael McCormack, the former leader of the National Party, his son is a New South Wales police officer. Right. And McCormack was just like, this is outrageous outrageous okay. that Christensen would attack the police in this situation. Yeah, so, I mean, we're seeing that kind of centre-right uh, being pulled by the gravity of these far-right rioters and, you know, we've we've then seen the kind of 
the the counter arguments being put. Sarah McManus had an op-ed where she said, "Look, we know that far right." agitators are trying to infiltrate unions. We know that they want to bring down unions. That's a, that's the history of fascism and far-right movements is to attack unions and to try and undermine us from within. We've seen Luke Hilakari come out and say we support vaccinations. I mean, the reality is the CFMU had said to their members you should get vaccinated. Um, and, and there's this real uh, ideological battle now to control the narrative about what we're actually seeing, you know, a sort of an attempt to convince people of what they're witnessing rather than people seeing what they're witnessing and knowing what it is. Does that make sense? Am I, am yeah, I making look, sense let's be, let's be really clear about what's going on, okay? Like, yeah. like everything in the world, from your favourite football team to your, you know, graduating high school class, the CFMEU as an organisation has a couple of people who are nitwits as members. Like it's very hard to get away from nitwits. Yeah. I, I personally have never been able to access a completely nitwit-free environment, not and a single try. workplace. <laughs> Not a single club. There is always a nitwit in the room. You know, whether you're good, bad, right, left or indifferent, you will find one there. And we know that there were a couple, and I mean a couple, of nitwits who are the kind of reluctant members of the CFME. So in Victoria, if you want the union rate of pay and if you want the union conditions and the workplace safety and all the good things that come with being in a union working on a commercial construction site, well, you're expected to be in the union. Like that's how it works. Yeah. So there are a couple of guys who want the money and they want the conditions and they want the safety and they want the good jobs and they resent the fact that they you know, are expected to be union members and they complain about everything and they grumble. I had people send me names like on the internet going, yep, I know this, like I know a couple of these guys and they hate being in the union, whatever. All right, those people exist. The union was attacked because that's what fascists do. This is exactly what happened in Nazi Germany, everybody. The very first place that you attack if you are an incipient fascist movement is a trade union office and you do it for these reasons. One, because militant left-wing unions like the CFMEU are not responsive to your political criticism, okay? Like the CFMEU does not care what a bunch of far-right freaks think about the government. They just don't. Yeah. So they are a bulwark against those beliefs. They're not susceptible to them. You know, they're not sitting in a circle having a cup of tea going, oh, God, you know, I wonder what far-right Fiona thinks about us. Like that's not what's going on. Um, unions also have the image of being this sort of tough, resilient organisations. If you can break a union, right, that's a powerful and intimidatory symbol of behaviour to put out into the community, right, that you took it to the big boys at the CFMEU and, you know, you broke them and you, you caused chaos and whatever, right, that's a that's a tough boy big noting yourself exercise. But the other thing, the other reason and why these actions like, because I've been monitoring these dudes for a year because I've been writing this book about QAnon. Obviously, I've been involved in anti-fascist action for, you know, majority of my adult life. 
and go to the protests. And I'm very adamant that when fascists organise, you turn up and you shut them down. And it doesn't matter if you identify as an anarchist or if you wear, you know, nice shoes and have an office job. You go, you do whatever you can to put to put the fascists in their box, right? Yeah. Because that's the only way to stop them is force of numbers and intimidate them and just and force them into sub, into submission and off the streets. So the reason why they they attack trade unions is because they know that it's a really good wedge with the centre-right. So when we talk about the centre-right as opposed to the far-right, we're talking about the Liberal Party and the National Party, you know, and that a spectrum of belief that is on the right, believes in small government, social conservatism, the rest of it, but does fundamentally support democracy. Now, they should be our allies, right? I'm very much of the opinion that democracy enthusiasts should stick together. I'm a democracy enthusiast and so are you. And as a left-wing person who saw the total disaster made of the socialist and communist revolutions in the 20th century where, you know, socialism without democracy is not socialism, it's authoritarianism and you can call it whatever you like but that's all it is, right? I'm a democracy enthusiast and anybody who's on that ship is my comrade whether they like it or not. (laughs) The problem is that we have a very, very politically weak centre-right government in this country at the moment. Scott Morrison is a weak leader, which I know you'll talk about in a bit. He runs off at the first sign of trouble. He can't really deal with, you know, the the huge responsibility he has as a Prime Minister. He tries to delegate everything, every job he doesn't like, and then run off to the football. You know, he can't wrangle his caucus. It's absolutely riddled with corruption and scandal. We know all of these things. We know that they pork barrel and they're unaccountable and they're incompetent and they don't follow through with promises. It's been more than a 1,000 days since they promised the National Integrity Commission absolutely nothing's been done. You know, it, they are they are a garbage fire of, of a government and they're weak and they're riddled by internal division. We know that. Yes. We absolutely know that. On climate change, so, on women's rights. On climate change, everything. on women's rights. We know there are women in, in the Liberal Party who are absolutely kicking off about the treatment of women. We know that there are people in the Liberal Party who are kicking off about the fact that Australia's dragging its feet on climate change. You know, they are riven with issues and dysfun- and it's dysfunctional. Yes. You know, there are people within the Liberal Party who hate one another a lot more than they hate anybody else on any other side of politics. And the temptation for centre-right governments, and it's always the temptation for centre-right governments, is to look at far-right movements and go, that's a potentially stabilising force. That if I recruit some far, if I allow, not so much recruit, but allow far-right you know, tendencies into the caucus, I will be able to control them. They will be very solid numbers. I'll just have to give them a few crumbs and then they'll back me in. And the far right, well, we can, they can do some things against our external political enemies that will strengthen our position, right? This is the delusion that always leads to fascists grabbing power. You can see it in Nazi Germany is a very good example because it was the conservative government in Nazi Germany that did the deal with Hitler to bring the Nazis into government. That's right. right? They weren't people. elected. They never had a majority. The Nazis in Germany never won a majority, people, but it was the conservatives who made the alliance who got them in. Well, that's right. People forget that it was a it was a conservative centre-right chancellor that made Hitler a minister and then a conservative centre-right president that made him chancellor. Chancellor. 
Yeah, exactly. And you can see it in the United States. This is playing out in the Republican Party at the moment where you had your old school Republicans like your Mitch McConnells and your Lindsey Grahams and, you know, your Ted Cruz's and Marco Rubio's. And, you know, these guys are, are firmly on the right, but none of them are like extremists. Yeah. Like I despise Republican Party politics in the United States. It's ideological anathema to me. I will fight it to my last cell and last breath. But fundamentally, I mean, those guys believe they're, in democracy. Yeah, they're, not, I mean, they're, they're, not actually, they're not actually Goebbels and Hess and, and Himmler, right? No, they're not Goebbels and Hess and Himmler. And I genuinely don't believe that those guys get up in the morning and go, do you know what we need? Extermination camps. I don't, that's not who yeah. they are. But they let Trump in. They saw what was going on with Trump. They saw the energy that he was bringing to the Republican Party and they thought, as cons- like conservatives in this situation do way too many times, they thought, oh, we can control him. We will be able to control him. We are the political experts. We are the ones who understand how Washington works. We will be able to yoke him and we can use him to get what we want. We can get um, conservative judges. We can get tax cuts and all of our traditional staff. And, of course, what's happening in the United States is that the energy that Trump brought in are absolute far-right gun-toting lunatics like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Madison Cawthorn and Lauren Burbot and all of these other absolute unhinged murderous loons who hate democracy and literally supported an insurrection against the government, against a Republican government, supported an insurrection that demanded to hang Mike Pence, the Republican vice president. And that's what happens. So you let those doors open and these guys who have an agenda which is not about democracy, about absolutely the opposite, they love those doors being open. And pretty soon, you know, the the ability to control them goes out the window. And what's terrifying in Australia at the moment is that you know, the Liberal Party is called the Liberal Party and not the Conservative Party because when it was founded in the late 1940s, they were like, you know, Conservatives will vote for us anyway, but we want to defend liberal values, liberal values around business, liberal values around society, you know, that we want to be a pro-democracy force. Mm. Remember the Liberal Party was founded in the wake of World War II. There was, you know, the people who founded the Liberal Party had fought fascism in Europe and fought imperialism in the Pacific theatre. You know, they were committed to a democratic and free idea and a lot of their antipathy towards communism came from a resentment of communist authoritarianism in Eastern Europe and then what they saw happening in China. And that liberal tradition that's supposed to define that party Unfortunately, under you know some the recent leadership iteration has become very weak. Morrison, for example, has spent enormous amounts of time and political energy defending the likes of George Christensen and defending the likes of Craig Kelly, guys who are absolutely on the hard right of the Liberal Party, and yet did not protect Julia Banks did not, you know, back in his friend Malcolm Turnbull. In fact, he stabbed him. And that that wing of the Liberal Party that represents a liberal tradition, that's much more mainstream and in tune with the values of the majority of Australians. Like I'd say Julia Banks has more ideological beliefs in common, like a larger Venn overlap with the vast majority of Australians than George Christensen does. And yet because of the dynamics of internal politics and how numbers work and who wants to be leader and who gets to be leader and the rest of it, you have an ideologically weak leadership in Scott Morrison that has abandoned mainstream Liberal Party identities for 
these extremist figures and, and created we, a space for them to exert influence. And, and Van, you know, it goes to the sort of comment that Bill Shorten made this week where he called these rioters man-baby Nazis. You know, the, the, there is a vacuum at the moment of leadership you know, I did. I did mention Sam McManus and Luke Hilakari from the union movement, and other unions are stepping in to try and say this is unacceptable. This is not what workers do. This is not something that we're doing. Uh, but at the same time, you've got uh, the the liberals kind of playing footsies with these people. You know, trying to chase them as a vote. Uh, and and Bill Shorten has a point, doesn't he, that these are man-baby Nazis and yet there's no one strong enough in the Liberal government to come out and just say, this is unacceptable, this is un-Australian, you must stop this, you are not unionists, you are not workers, and we will not tolerate it. No, none of them have come even close to that kind of language. No, and it's that's what's genuinely terrifying. I was a little bit heartened by McCormick and Darren Chester today, like yeah. going after Christensen, and I was like, yeah, because that's they are the values that you are supposed to be defending. They are the pro-democracy, centre-right values that Australians who vote for the Liberal Party vote for. The majority of Liberal Party people are not represented, uh, Liberal Party voters are not represented by George Christensen, not remotely. We know that. Like you look at any poll on any policy issue and whatever position Christensen holds will be a minority one again and again and again. You know, like if if liberal voters didn't back in marriage equality, there wouldn't be marriage equality in this yeah. country. We know we, that the numbers are on the table, and we should and we should remind people that George Christensen, because of our the way our democracy works, you know, he represents an electorate of about a hundred thousand people, and you know, he gets. Uh, he is the preferred candidate, not even the first choice candidate, but the preferred candidate for about 56% of them. So, you know, that's who George Christensen represents when you when we talk about George Christensen. But he has managed to parlay a position where he is elected by 56% of 100 thousand people around who live in and around Mackay into a national platform where he is espousing the the sorts of foreign propaganda far right rhetoric that we saw lead to the insurrection in America in, in January. Oh absolutely and I'm going to – sorry, I just dropped my microphone. Um, there's my upcoming book, because I'm doing a lot of uh, interviews and stuff about this at the moment. I'm going to be on the drum tomorrow night. And the reason why I'm writing about it is I've, I've just done this book, QAnon and On, which is about these extremist movements online, specifically the conspiracy theorist um, iterations. But George Christensen has a role. Um, I encourage you to buy my book and it's genuinely horrifying at the point in which in the story that George Christensen turns up. I'll leave you all to discover that. Um, but it, it's to really... Quote the, to quote the New York Times, it reads like a thriller except it's true. Yes. Thank you, New York Times. Thank you. Um, but certainly I want people to I want people to be aware of just how how the genuinely terrifying thing that's happening here is that 
the federal Liberal Party is so weak, it's so battered by internal division and scandal that they that their line on these protests that they are actually positioning the CFMU as the enemy, as if these are normal times. And in normal times, you know, the centre right, uh, you know, kick unions, and in normal times, the centre left kick big business, and that's you know that's supposed to be the spectrum of political fight well, and engagement. Well, I would just want to touch our- on that very briefly, Van, because the ACTU. The Australian Council of Trade Unions, Australian Unions, supporters of this show, uh, and the BCA, the Business Council of Australia, uh, the bosses' union, if you like, the representatives of the biggest companies, put out joint statements condemning this. This is yeah, you know, this is a that's a big deal. That's a big deal because, by the way, authoritarianism is really bad for business. Yeah. And at the end of the day, like if you if you want to make money, a capitalist econ- like a, a democratic capitalist economy is the way to do it. So, yeah. yeah, because um, an authoritarian can just as easily take away your company uh, as, as an authoritarian can take away the rights of a worker, right? Like for well, them, it's one we, of the same. That happens in Russia and China all the time. Yeah. Like if you fall foul of the of – the, um, of the elite, you know, if you if you offend the leadership group, it's prison and repossession and, you know, that's how authoritarianism works. Yeah. There's no – private property is, is not a thing in, a, in an authoritarian community. However, I mean, the, where we are though is the, the fact that the Liberals are not are not condemning this is is a sign of their weakness, and that that's not only a weakness in terms of the leadership of the whole country, but the susceptibility of you know the intrusion of these people and these movements into their branches, into their organising, into their leadership positions. Like this is generally this is what we saw in America with how the loons walked through the door into the Republican Party and suddenly the people who thought they were such sharp operators and they had the situation under control became absolute doormats to Trump and have never regained the power they had before they let that movement through internally, externally or anything else. We are seeing that in Victoria, right, because there's been – there's been a marked shift in in the Victorian Liberal Party uh, towards that style, that far right style of mobilisation, and there was obviously some scandals uh, involving some people who were branch stacking. I think that was last year or the year before. But the you know Matthew guy has not. Uh, you know, filled the void here and gone, as a centre-right party, we condemn these far-right activists. Instead, you're seeing the hard-right members of his caucus, as small as it may be, and in his opposition as it may be, really, again, doing the same thing, attacking the union movement, attacking Dan Andrews, making this, rather than saying, this is a moment where we have to come together to defend democracy, they're looking for a political advantage, which... They're just—it's so short term, isn't it? Because long term, if you let fascists through the door, you know they're going to take over the house. Yeah, that's exactly that's well, historically that's what always happens. You know, unfortunately, all of us um, across the political spectrum who are democracy enthusiasts rely on the centre right to be a bulwark against these people because this is not this is not a problem that we have on the left. Like the left has its loons, absolutely, but those people don't. the The culture of the left is different. Like the more extreme yeah, they, they, and they radical, and even 
Huh? Pissing up and sell newspapers at genuine protests, even when they're asked not to. That's the they're the kind of loons we have. They're, they're not they're not attacking the BCA office. They're not laying siege to it. For example, no, no, there is there's no tradition of left wing terrorism in this country. There just isn't. Yeah, you know, and 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 it, I mean, it has to do with different cultural priorities and different political interests and all of those things. But in Australia and in America, in in Western countries, in Western liberal democratic states, the threat is from an organised far right um, running down the bulwark that the centre right is supposed to. But it wall off. And the AFP, the AFP has said this in the past as well, right? So there was lots of coverage when the AFP made it clear to government that the biggest threat to Australia in terms of terrorism was from the far right. Um, even while Peter Dutton was trying to suggest that there were left wing terrorists, you know, running around under the bed somewhere. Um, and yet we were seeing far-right terrorists kill people in New Zealand, kill people in America, and the AFP... An Australian far-right terrorist yeah, yeah, people Yeah, that's in New right. Zealand. It was an Australian. And the AFP have made that point, right, that the, the far-right are anti-democratic terrorists. These are people prepared to use and in some cases seem to relish the use of violence to achieve what they believe are, are political goals. I literally had somebody post on my Facebook page yesterday, uh, like because I've been getting trolled quite heavily, as you can imagine, because it's a day ending and why. And yeah. I had someone going, oh, we need a violent revolution in this country, you know, one of these far-right loons. And I'd, like under a recognisable account with their face, and, of course, like I have screenshotted it all yeah. and we'll be dealing with it appropriately, but actually they are in discourses of violence. It is how they define themselves. My research has found them to be sort of obsessed with these heroic narratives where these sort of, you know, sloppy, prejudiced, nasty, small-minded, culturally intolerant people all want to be Marvel superheroes and create this whole language of, you know, patriotism and fighting, you know, where freedom, 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 patriotism, you know, and wrapping themselves in the flag and going out like they're heroes, like they're, you know, these great mavericks and rebels and whatever. And I just, I've always found it really hilarious because these are the world's least rebellious people. Um, sure, they're kicking off against cops, um, but they are also being organised by people who they don't know and they can't see. And I keep coming back to the fact that the anti-lockdown protests were coordinated by a group of right-wing extremists in Germany yeah. and the vast majority of people who participated in those anti-lockdown protests here would have had no idea. Like They just didn't question where it was coming from or identify who was involved in that and what and, and ask what that agenda might have been. They're such sheep and they're so absolutely polluted with the right-wing disinformation that they willingly suck up online. And this is the thing too, like these people believe these crazy narratives, you know, that Dan Andrews is a dictator. And that, that's really weird because I remember voting for Dan Andrews. Yeah, Do you remember voting times. for Dan Andrews, Ben? Yeah, <laughs> couple a couple of times. times. Yeah. yeah, rather a lot of us, which is why he's the leader of Victoria, is because he was democratically elected to make leadership decisions, you know, and the the – nonsense that they believe, you know, that, that Australia is a communist totalitarian state, which will be news to anybody who was a refugee from China yeah. at the time of the Tiananmen Square massacre. Like, you know, the, the understanding of what communist totalitarianism looks like might be slightly different based on, oh, I don't know, your lived experience or your capacity to borrow a book. 
book from the library or look something up on the internet. But um, the- Listen, I'm not saying I'm not seeing a lot of um, Vietnamese or Chinese faces in these in these crowds of rioters. Van, yeah, funny that, isn't it? Yeah, isn't that funny? Isn't all that the, funny? All the people who look like they have, have fled from genuine communist um, authoritarian regimes. Look, yeah, no. This is, this is a this is an incredibly important topic, and and I think it's going to continue on because, frankly, um, I just want to make a couple of other points about. Yeah, then we then we have to move on. Yeah, and I know we need to move on, but this has been a really big one in terms of you know the discussions I've been having online in the past couple of weeks. The other thing is, like, we know that these are inorganic protests or astroturfed protests because we know some of the characters just turned up. My friend Bunnings Karen has been very present. This yes. is the woman who went into a Bunnings and abused the staff, which is the the red line for me. Anybody who abuses staff, as you well know, anywhere is just dead to me. Um, abused the staff in a Bunnings about being asked to wear a mask. And what do you know? This is a person who you know exists on in internet grifter land. You know, please subscribe to my channel, kind of stuff. Yeah. And what do you know? They're at the protest. Avi Yamini, yeah. well-known far-right figure in Victoria, never too far away from a bit of you know fascist uprising. He's been there. All these sort of rebel media identities, people who are absolutely visibly associated with the online far-right, they are there. Other things that people have noticed, like there were monitored conversations. Sometimes I think I'm in telegram groups that have more journalists in them than than fascists. All this stuff is getting out so quickly. I sort of hope that's true, you know. Just, huh? just, just quietly, I sort of hope that's true. <laughs> uh, there's a few, there's a few of us who've been doing this work. Yeah. But you know, instructions went out about supplying high vis and make sure you're yeah. in high vis and buy your high vis online and the rest of it. You know, the, the there have been people taking photos of everybody's shoes. You've never seen tradies with such clean shoes in your life yeah. at these demonstrations. There were photographs of dudes who were wearing high vis that had the name of a company on the back, which is typically what your high-vis looks like if you actually work in construction, yep. except that company closed down like two years ago. Like these are the things, the information is very apparent and there that this is organised, targeted, strategised far-right action to hit traditional political enemies in a trajectory that has you know been used by fascists worldwide for decades. And for the Liberal Party to pretend that it's anything to do with you know the movement of organised labour is 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 absolutely disgusting, but revealing of just how weak they absolutely. are. Absolutely, and I want to I want to sort of wrap this com- part of the conversation up with saying that the Australian Union movement could not be clearer about their position, and that is that everyone who can get vaccinated should get vaccinated. They've run TV ads, they've run radio ads, they've run ads online, they've provided material to organisers. There's heaps of things. You and I are in a meme. Yeah, we're in a meme. Hashtag Vax Solidarity, and I encourage everybody to share those memes. You know, it started almost as a bit of a joke, these selfies of when we get vaccinated, but it's true. The vast majority of people are supportive of the efforts to protect each other. That's what it's about. It's about protecting each other. You know, there, there is nothing more Australian than saying, yeah, I'm, I'm prepared to go a little bit out of my way to make sure 
someone in my neighbourhood who I may never meet doesn't die. You know, I think that's a pretty core Australian value. Doesn't take a lot. Doesn't take a lot. Can be a bit frustrating. You might have a bit of arm pain. You know, talk to your union about whether you get vaccination leave. These are all things that you can do, you can take control of in your own life to make you safe, to make your family safe, to make your community safe. And I want to say this, there, there are some things people can do about what's happening right now. One is join your union. This is the perfect time to be a union member. Sally McManus's op-ed on this was really, really clear. The far right are trying to infiltrate into the unions, not just besiege the officers, but they're trying to undermine what unions are about, and that is solidarity with each other, solidarity with all working people. And protecting but, people's democratic rights. Absolutely. But, so you join, know, we so, absolutely rely on strong unions, which are democratic organisations, to defend the democratic rights of everyone. And if you want to strengthen, you know, th- that activism, if you want to stand up against the people who would quite happily take away your vote, take away your rights, you know, take away your your control of your own political destiny, join a union. Yeah, and you can do it right now, australianunions.org.au slash wow, that's W-O-W for the week on Wednesday. You know, you can do that right now. The other thing you can do is you can book your vaccination. If you haven't already been vaccinated, book your vaccination. If you can do so, please do that now. And, and if share- you have, yeah, and if you have questions about vaccination, ask your doctor. Yeah, like absolutely. Your doctor will level with you. Everybody not- wants you to be safe. Everybody wants you to be healthy. Ben and I like got vaxxed because we want you to be all right. Yeah, you know, that's right. like that's what we're doing as a country and a community. I'm pretty sure that there would be very few people who listen to this show who aren't vaccinated. Who aren't vaccinated? We got vaccinated as soon as we could because you know, if you want to be a superhero, I say this to the lunatics like desecrating important cultural symbols down in Melbourne. You know, what would Captain America do? Would do? He would get freaking vaccinated. Because Captain America took an experimental serum for his country. He didn't know what was in it. That's he right. strapped himself to the goddamn machine and he could have died. Took one last look at the woman he loved and took the serum anyway because he was a goddamn hero. That's what a hero looks like. Get the goddamn vaccine. And the third thing is share the conversation and and get one or two other people that you know to join your union and to book their vaccination as well. That's how we share and spread solidarity and stop the spread of viruses and stomp out fascism. There are three things to do. They are join your union, book your vaccination, get at least one, preferably two other people to do the same thing. If we all do that, if we all do that, then it doesn't matter how many irrelevant wannabe fascist controllers in the Liberal Party there are and how many little tiny ponds of fascism exist because we will always be able to outnumber them, but we have to stand together to do it. I think, you know, I think 
that you're absolutely right, Van. The the heroes are the ones who get the vaccines. They're not the ones throwing beer bottles at female police and union officers. Now, I do want to talk very briefly. I love about, Captain America, Ben. He's I my know, favorite. I know you do. You got a Captain America Captain America mug. You know, I haven't used that mug while you've been away. I've kept that. <laughs> Kept that sacred. That's your mug. It is. He's. I love him. I love him. I drink out of the Thor mug. Just for listeners at home who are interested in the dynamics of our tea and coffee mugs, there you go. (laughs) Um, So, look, there is one other one one other serious issue before we get to the good news, and that is. I just want to point out, Captain America punches Nazis. Yeah, that's right. America does not like fascists. That's That's his whole act. Man, I want to move on. So. Because the, the other issue, and we t- I touched on this in the weekend wrap, uh, and again, thanks so much to everyone who supported the weekend wrap this week. Big, big listener numbers, fantastic outcomes. But Scott Morrison, post that announcement, that nuclear submarine announcement, which was such a big feature of the weekend wrap, has now left the country and gone to Washington and is, is meeting with Biden and Boris about this. And we've got the OECD saying our economy is not performing as well as they had expected. We've got some economists suggesting the real rate of unemployment is 20%. We've got right-wing rioters in Melbourne. We've got- And an earthquake. Well done, Melbourne. the earthquake. We've got Sydney- into the fourth month of a lockdown. Uh, is this the right time for the Prime Minister to be swanning off to New York to talk about how big and shiny the toys are going to be in 2040? Well, of course, because Scott Morrison doesn't take responsibility. He's got no interest in standing shoulder to shoulder with Australians in their hour of need. If his leadership wasn't weak and pathetic, he would be here. Like... It's so it's it, it, I, sometimes I play this game called if I were the conservative prime minister of this country <laughs> and I wanted to be if I, and I wanted to stay in power a thousand years you would go down to Melbourne like the political move would be to go down to Melbourne and personally stare down the rioters and condemn them and give some speech about the glory of Australian democracy that would win over yeah. you know soft but Anzac's liberal fought and died for democracy you know, not for that's what you do you do the full on parade at the war memorial and you'd be like Australia's died for democracy we're not you know, opening the yeah. we're not opening the gates to Hitler. You know, you that's what you would do. You would wrap yourself in the flag and sing a song of glory. But he's not that kind of guy. So he's in America getting a new submarine. Oh, I just, uh, I, I just, just beyond the strategic implications, which are absolutely insane. I mean, you know, I had a conversation. Their huh? ambassador van, you know, France is France. Their ambassador yeah, France, van. one of the we the power nations within the EU bloc. The Potentially, EU, the EU trade ministers have called a meeting. Uh, you know, we're supposed to be trying to get a, a, a free trade agreement. There was some suggestion that Morrison was just going to try and wait out the Macron uh, government because Macron has to face an election next year. France notably has stared down its own issues with the far right. By the way. Uh, Macron faces an election and the Morrison government strategy here was to sort of hope somebody else would win and wouldn't care about this issue. Like just very, very bizarre, weak kind of behaviour. Oh, he is so weak. Remember when we used to tip a bucket on Turnbull for being weak? Remember that? 
Yeah. Like I, look, I look to those days of, you know, strong Turnbull-like leadership fondly now, like in comparison. I've never seen in my entire political lifetime, I have never seen such weak national leadership in this country as I've seen from Scott Morrison. I think He's extraordinary. Man, the moment anything, this is a man who evacuates a house yeah. if, he, if he smells a bad smell. Then, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I think the point that you've made is a really good one, right, because Turnbull, Turnbull was – Internally weak, he was. He was. He was internally weak within the Liberal Party, and it meant that he he always came across to the Australian people as being unable to deliver, as being constantly compromised on the things he believed in. Whereas Morrison is actually just a weak man, so he doesn't come across as being internally compromised. He seems, you know, he's very righteous about his own particular religious views. He's very. It's sort of very clear what Morrison believes in, but what Morrison believes in is just never taking responsibility. So the weakness of Morrison is in the national leadership sphere. So we've gone from a prime minister who couldn't bring his party to the point of national leadership to a prime minister who's more than happy to have his party not take national leadership and avoid that responsibility entirely. Oh, it is it is extraordinary. I mean, what's the Morrison legacy going to be? Some nuclear submarines that are a strategic headache for us until we decommission them in when, 50 years' time. I, like, I, hear, he, I hear he's almost finished that chicken coop. Oh, well, I mean, there you Maybe. go. The Memorial Scott Morrison chicken coop. You know, it's, it's only slightly less impressive. Uh, I just, I can't, I just can't even because it's like, what if, what did you do? What have you done? What was the point? You're the dog that caught the car. Now you've got the car. Now what, love? What are you doing? Yeah. The, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. When the going gets tough, Scott Morrison goes on holiday and repeatedly. I'm looking forward to, you know, what wonderful family snaps he's going to send back from the United States after the trip to Cornwall, the trip to Waikiki, <laughs> and the curries and the chicken there's, coop. There's got to be there's got to be. To quote Star Wars, the Empire Strikes Back, never his mind on where he was, what he was doing. It's <laughs> got to be some Morrison distant relatives in New Jersey or Florida that he can go and visit. Oh, Look, you can just imagine it's going to be like, you know, chicken restaurants or some absolutely naff thing. And it's like literally the past maybe. week, Daniel Andrews has had to stare down a pandemic rioters from the far right and an earthquake, right? I don't see Daniel Andrews going on holiday. This is a man who literally had to break his back to sit down. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a real chalk and cheese example, isn't it? Look, oh, I think there's going to be a lot more to talk about this. Maybe we'll all get lucky and Morrison will decide that elections are so hard he will spend uh, the next federal election overseas on holiday. Uh, but, Van, let's talk about some good news because there's for, for once there's actually some good news about fossil fuels uh, and, in particular, uh, petroleum. Yeah, it's a historical moment. Um, it's come way too late, but it's finally here, and I'm going to celebrate that. Uh, the last unleaded petrol, uh, the last leaded petrol has been solved. Leaded petrol is now obsolete. It is over. So when cars, yeah, it's am- it's amazing. Like it's a historic event. When they started making cars, they realised that the composition of petrol 
ultimately corroded the engines. So they started putting experimenting with additives and putting things in the petrol to stop that from happening. And, of course, they came up with lead. Um, so leaded petrol was a thing all over the world. And in the 1970s, they started working out that it was very, 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 very bad. It made people sick. It polluted environments. It created smog. It was just terrible stuff. The United States, with the kind of speed and efficiency for which they are renowned, uh, began a 25-year phase-out, which is sort of how, like, they dealt with their acid rain problem yeah, and all kinds of things. you can't rush these things, Van. You, you, you can't you, rush these things. You've got to have no, at least two generations of children get respiratory illness before you have a complete solution to these problems. Yeah, yeah. Well, Japan moved on it really quickly. Japan were like, yeah, no, we're not going to do it. And... Um, 41 years ago, Japan made that decision and obviously that filtered through Japanese automobile design and the rest of it. The last country on earth to sell leaded petrol was Algeria and they have just stopped. So, I mean, this is progress. Obviously, we want to get to a point where the whole concept of a, of a petrol engine is gone. Um, absolutely, we want um battery like electric vehicles mm. this is the industry of the well, future zero emission transport that's what we need yeah, to get to thank you ben zero emission transport that's what we want and more trees and flowers yes. and wilderness but it's such, a, it's such an important historical moment because i remember when it i was is. a kid you know I, I remember the the conversations in australia around leaded and unleaded petrol and there was advertising campaigns about making the shift to unleaded and you know if if you you could put additives in if you needed it for your particular car and all this sort of thing. And, of course, here it's been um, almost impossible to get leaded petrol for some time. But congratulations to the people of Algeria. Welcome to the global community. Uh, it's good to, good to have you with us now in this journey of eliminating fossil fuel as a form of transportation. We ourselves are still on that journey. The whole global community is trying to move to zero emission transport and we are now all just a little bit closer to that outcome. What fantastic news to end the week on Wednesday with. Can I just once again point out to people, week on Wednesday, number one political podcast on the Apple podcast (laughs) charts this week. So, so proud of all the work that you've done, Van, to make that happen. And I would so. I, I'm, I'm sorry if I'm. I am slightly, uh, you know, not quite on my game today, given the massive wound in my head. But you know, if you can't do done, it with a head wound, where can you do it? You know? You've done remarkably well, and also so proud of all the listeners who've stuck with us from the start. When we started this thing in the shed, at least we were together, but we were in the shed. Uh, we were hopeful we'd get a couple of hundred downloads a month. We've now massively, massively exceeded that every day, which is great. Uh, and, and that's because listeners like you listening to this right now share this podcast, you subscribe, you like, you talk to people about it. And I couldn't be more proud to know that people are still joining their union. I've had many emails this week, and I apologize. I haven't had time yet to get back to people who've been emailing, people who've joined their union, people who've become delegates in their union, people who've been delegates for a long time, who've just started listening to the show and are sharing it with their colleagues and co-workers who are then joining the union. Like it's such a such a point of pride for me, and I know for you as well, Van. That, oh, that- I mean, that's why we get out of bed in the morning that we're making change to the political dialogue in this country and it's the listeners, it's you who make this 
happen. You keep listening, you keep sharing, you keep liking, and we'll keep making it. Van is going to be on the drum uh, Thursday. This is tomorrow night, uh, Thursday the 23rd of September. So do check that out. That's exciting. And if you're in Perth, uh, you can get an intimate visit to the contents of my particularly unusual imagination. I have done an adaptation of George Orwell's book Animal Farm. Uh, for the stage for the Black Swan State Theatre Company of Western Australia that starts at the Heath Ledger Theatre in the State Theatre Centre there on the 2nd of October and runs until the 24th of October. And it is wild. Uh, If you want to see some really sexy, radical chickens, let me tell you, it's the show for you. And um, if you are amused by my sense of humour, I think you'll get a lot out of that particular show. Um, I have taken out a lot of my tension on authoritarians uh, and the authoritarian movement worldwide, especially in the West, with my uh, approach to Animal Farm. And it is, it's quite nuts. It's its actually quite nuts and I'd love you to see it. So check that out. There are limited tickets. So get on to the Black Swan Theatre Company uh, website and book your tickets straight away. And I also want to give a shout out to the the dedicated listener uh, who made a TikTok review of our last episode at political underscore A-N-V-I. If you're on TikTok, check it out. It's a, I just, I think it's an awesome review. Obviously, he gives us five stars because why wouldn't you? Uh, So do check that out as well. And just once again, (laughs) don't forget to tune in to the Weekend Wrap. I will be back again on Sunday. It's always been my pleasure. I love you so much, Fanny. Oh, Ben, I've got to say, in the stadium at the moment, I'm missing you so badly. Yeah. So badly. I mean, these things are hard to go through at the best of times, but I'm a bit in the wars and I need you and I miss you terribly. I miss you too. Bye. I love you. Bye.